You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Did you know that there are 173 United States embassies in nations around the world? Um, Maybe those of you who have done some international travel, just curious by a show of hands, has anyone been to, not necessarily inside, but to an an, an embassy, a U.S. embassy in another country? Have you seen one before? Okay, a few of you, right? Um, what, What is an embassy? It's an official headquarters for diplomats or ambassadors serving in a foreign country. So it's this piece of property, it's gated, there's a building, usually a very nice building, And what's interesting is when you step on the property of a a U.S. embassy in a foreign country, you are legally on United States soil. So say you're in South Africa, for example, and you go to the U.S. embassy and you get through the gate. And when, when that happens, even though you're surrounded by South Africa, even though you are thousands of miles away from the United States, you are actually on United States soil soil. I just learned this week, I didn't know this, but uh, oftentimes embassies are called missions of the United States. Consulates as well, similar thing. Why? Because these embassies, these missions, they serve a distinct purpose. Embassies and the ambassadors, the diplomats who work in them, what are they doing? They're, They're carrying out foreign policy objectives for the United States government. They're cultivating relationships with other nations. And in moments of emergency in foreign nations, a, a, a U.S. embassy becomes a safe haven for citizens who are in that foreign country. Now this morning, as we're walking through our Summer in the Psalms series, we're, we're looking at Psalm 67. And this psalm, have you heard it? This psalm is a missionary psalm. It's unique in that way. So far, as we've been going through the psalms, and we haven't been doing them in order, we've been doing doing them thematically. So we've looked at, for example, we've looked at a psalm of wisdom, Psalm 1, teaching us how to live wisely before God. We've looked at a psalm of praise, Psalm 19, that tells us of the glory of God in creation and in His Word. We've looked at two psalms of confidence in the Lord, Psalm 16 and Psalm 23. We've looked at two psalms of repentance, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. We've looked at Psalm 2, which is a a direct prophecy, a messianic psalm. It's pointing us directly to Jesus. And then last week, we looked at a psalm of lament in Psalm 42. And here, in Psalm 67, we, we have a unique psalm because it's not only about how we relate to the Lord and how the Lord relates to us. Have you noticed that's what every psalm that we've looked at so far has been about those things? How do we relate to God and how does God relate to us? But this psalm goes a step further and tells us the church's purpose in the world. Not just how does God relate to us and how do we relate to Him, but how then do we, with that relationship, relate to the world around us? And and this psalm's teaching us something that we see all throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, but we see glimpses of it in places in the Old Testament like Psalm 67. 
Just as an embassy is a representation of a government in foreign land, so the church is a representation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to a world that doesn't know him. That's what Psalm 67 is teaching us. Just as ambassadors and diplomats are carrying out the mission of their home country on foreign soil, so we who know Jesus Christ, we who are Christians, are to carry out the mission of making Christ known to the nations. Have you ever wondered, if you're a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, you said, maybe you've thought, why am I still here? Why not, when I became a Christian, you know, just like the Lord just, why didn't he just beam me up to heaven? You know, like, zoom, like Star Trek style. Why, why didn't he just say, okay, now you have, you've turned from your sins, you've trusted in Christ, now you're a part of the family, let me bring you home so you can enjoy my presence for all eternity. God hasn't done that. God's left his people here. And Psalm 67 gives us the answer to that question. Here's, here's the psalm in a sentence. God has blessed us with salvation that we may bring the good news of the gospel to others for their gladness and for his glory. God has blessed us with salvation that we may then bring that message of salvation to the nations, to those around us, to others, for their gladness and joy and for his glory. And, and this, is, this is a mission not just for the quote-unquote professional Christians. This is so important. This is for every one of God's children. You might be tempted to say, okay, you're talking about mission, or another word for this is evangelism, sharing the evangel, which is the good, means good news. Isn't, isn't that for the professionals? Like, Kevin, isn't that for people like you? You know, you went to school, you study these things, that's your job. And the Bible gives a, a resounding no to that question. In fact, there are no professional Christians. There are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom. And, and rem remember, we've said this every week through the Psalms. These are hymns that the entire church, the entire people of Israel sang together in public worship. This wasn't something that just the priests sang. This wasn't something a certain group of ministers or missionaries sang or the theologians over here and the, the regular followers of God did something else. No, this is something for all of God's covenant people. So my prayer this morning as we walk through this psalm is that we would see what a sweet privilege it is to, to first receive the blessing of salvation, but then to be appointed by God to spread that message to those around us. It's a sweet privilege to be ambassadors in the embassy of God's kingdom. And we have this joyous work to do. So we're going to work through this psalm in three parts. Very simple. Number one, blessing for us. Number two, salvation for others. Number three, glory to God. Blessing for us, salvation to others, and glory to God. Number one, blessing for us. Look at verse one. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Just a, a quick note on that phrase, selah. What does that mean? It is a liturgical term, and there's, there's not a lot of clarity on exactly what it means. Most people think it means uh, uh, pause. It's sort of a, a liturgical note, possibly saying, hey, stop and reflect on what you just sang. 
Now, the psalm writer here, as he starts the psalm, the psalm writer's anonymous, we don't know who this person is, but he's praying a popular priestly blessing for Israel. This is something everyone would have known. Their minds would have been back to, gone back to Numbers chapter 6, verses 26, when he said, may God be gracious to us, bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. This was a priestly blessing. The priest would pray it out for the people of God. And the us here, may God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us, the us here is very specific. It refers to the nation of Israel. He's talking about God's covenant people. He's not praying for the whole world. We'll get to that in a moment. He's not praying for the nations. He's saying, God, be gracious to us. Now, we talked about blessing a little bit when we kicked off the summer series, Psalm 1. What does blessing mean according to the Bible? So, so the, the, the prayer is saying, bless your covenant people. What does that mean? Well, it certainly means and includes earthly physical provision, okay? which would be something we normally think about. We see that in verse 6. This psalm was likely, it's not just a missionary psalm, but also a psalm. Uh, some commentators believe it was celebrating and responding to a season of good harvest. So verse 6 says, the earth yielded its increase. God has provided for us. So when, when we pray for God's blessing, are we praying for uh, earthly needs and material things? Yes. That, that is a part of it. Lord, provide for our needs today. Jesus taught us to pray that way, didn't he? Give us this day our daily bread. So, so blessing in the biblical sense is not less than earthly provision, but it's certainly much more than earthly provision. And we know this because of the two other words other than blessing used here in verse 1. Before, uh, he, he mentions blessing, and again, he's quoting this prayer from Numbers chapter 6. Before he talks about blessing, what does he say? Lord, be gracious to us. What does he mean by that? He's not talking about give us earthly things, give us our food. No, he's saying, God, show us your favor. To pray for God to be gracious to us is to say, God, I need your unmerited favor, meaning I don't deserve it, I can't earn it, but I need your favor. It's to say, God, I'm needy, I have no right to demand anything from you, you're God, I'm not, I'm a sinner, you're holy, would you please be gracious to me? So verse 1 is not only praying for provision of blessing, but it's also a prayer for the grace of salvation, spiritual provision as well. And ultimately, verse 1 is a prayer for God's presence. We see this at the end of verse 1 when it says, may God make his face to shine upon us. Now, we don't normally talk that way, you know, like I'd like your face to shine upon me. That'd actually be very weird if one of you said that to me later today. But I think we understand the picture here. It's a picture of deep, intimate friendship with, with God. Right? The closer your face is to someone else's, the more intimate the connection. If you were walking down Moody Street later today and a stranger came up to you and just got like two inches from your face, which by the way, Moody Street would be the most likely place that would happen in Waltham, I'm just saying, right? 
and you didn't know that person, what would, what would happen? You would either back away, say, uh, excuse me, too close. You might swing, I don't know, like depending on, you know, how you're wired. You'd leave. That would be too close to comfort, for comfort, too intimate, right? But if a spouse or your child came up to you and got that close, you would welcome it. It's a sign of intimacy. One morning this week, we were downstairs, kids had just woken up, and and my three-year-old Jude, he, he, he came up to me and he just grabbed my face and just pulled, me, pulled it really close. And I thought, he just so close, I thought it was going to be something sweet, I thought he was going to kiss me or something. And he, he just goes, ah, smell my breath, right? <laughs> and it smelled very bad, right? Morning breath and Cheerios. But why, why did he feel, why was he comfortable with that? Well, because of the close intimacy of this father-son relationship. So, to ask for God's face to shine upon me is to say, God, I want to be in a restored, close, intimate relationship to you. God, be near us in friendship and love. We can say it this way. Here's what the psalmist is teaching in verse 1. The ultimate blessing that God gives his people is the blessing of himself relationship with him. We saw this at the beginning uh, of, of Scripture, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were in full relationship with God. What did they have? They had the blessing of provision. They had the blessing of his favor. They had his presence, his face shown upon them. That's Genesis 1 and 2. No sin is there to hinder that relationship. But what happens in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve disobey God. They scorn his blessing. They say God's not enough for us. They believe the lie of Satan. And as a result, Genesis 3, the blessing is removed because God warned them, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The blessing is removed and the curse is given. And Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, including every one of us, are under this curse of sin. God's face was separated from them. And ultimately, that curse leads to death and eternal separation from God. So the presence of God was once there in all of its beauty, but lost because of sin. You know, what's so interesting and so important for us to see if we go back and read Genesis 1 through 3, we see that even in this moment, God is gracious to Adam and Eve. He promises, Genesis 3, that one day someone will come from the seed of the woman who will defeat the enemy and reverse the curse, Genesis 3.15. And even though Adam and Eve are, are separated from relationship with, with God, sin enters the world, they have to depart the Garden of Eden, they have to lead, uh, leave His presence. But even then, what does God do as they're leaving? He he sacrifices an animal and clothes them with animal skins. He is gracious to them. Then as we read through the Old Testament, we see this ongoing struggle for the people of God, the people who believe in Him. They're awaiting this promised one who will reverse the curse of sin. And the struggle is, okay, will we turn to God for the blessing of His presence or will we try to find blessing and life and meaning in this cursed world? And often, 
They're turning away from God. Turning away from God. Even the so-called heroes of the Bible are wrecked by the curse of sin. Right? As, the, as the theologian Homer Simpson said when he read the Bible, everybody in this book is messed up except for this one guy. He's talking about Jesus. So there's this battle, there's this desire for God's presence. It's why number six is praying for this blessing, for grace, for God's face to shine upon us because the curse of sin has separated us from Him. And it goes on and on and on until the promised one, Genesis 3.15, arrives, Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to take away the sin of the world, the great high priest. So how is blessing restored? How is Psalm 67, 1, number 6, how is that prayer answered that the priest would pray over the people? It's answered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, Paul tells us, Jesus was, was a second Adam. Unlike Adam, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's commands. And being the perfect sacrifice, he laid down his life for us on the cross when he died. And he rose from the grave, defeated sin and death, reversing the curse so that all who believe in him may be restored to the blessing of God's presence. We have to read Psalm 67.1 in light of the whole story of Scripture. And when we do, we see this prayer is answered in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul put it like this way in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on the tree. You could also read that verse and say, so if Christ redeemed us for the, for, from the curse, that means he redeemed us to the blessing of God's presence. God is gracious to us. He blesses us. He makes his face to shine upon us through salvation in Jesus Christ. And he just pours that blessing out on the Christian. In fact, when you're reading the New Testament writers, you'll see often as they start thinking about the blessing of salvation that they can't contain themselves. They get so excited that they just ignore every grammar rule for writing. They, they would fail grammar class and just go on and on about the greatness of blessing. Let me give you one example. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's a big passage, but we're going to read it all because the Apostle Paul is so overwhelmed by the blessing of the gospel that he goes on. For us, it's, it's broken up in English to, to several sentences. This is one long run-on sentence in the original language, in the Greek. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's not done. Still, same sentence. In him, we have obtained an inheritance 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're meant to be overwhelmed by that. He says, you want to know the blessing of salvation? Let me give it to you. You're chosen. You're loved. You're predestined. You're adopted. You're blessed. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. I've lavished grace upon you. You have an inheritance, and you've been sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what we have in Christ. Friends, that's way better than the the hashtag blessed job promotion or the new car or the pay bump or whatever it may be. All those things are fine and good. But friends, we have in Christ been saved from our sins. We have been restored to the presence of God. Does that amaze you? Every once in a while when we're sitting in our office where intern Jake works with us this summer, I'll just look over at him and say, we should be in hell right now. I know that sounds blunt, but, but do, you, are you, are you ever, do you ever just stop and say, wait a second, I deserve just judgment, yet here I am, breath in my lungs, forgiveness is mine, Life may be tough at times, it certainly is. Don't mishear me, Psalm 42 last week, right? But my eternity is sure. I have been blessed beyond measure. I should be amazed by this grace. So friends, we have to ask ourselves, this is so important before we get to mission, right? Are you blessed? And I don't mean do you have nice things, is life easy? Are things going well for you right now? I mean, have you trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? If the answer to that is yes, then you are blessed beyond measure. God's face, his favor is shining upon you. And you have to grasp that first because that is the fuel for number two. Salvation for others. Blessing for us, number two salvation for others. Let me read verse 1 again alongside verse 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah, number two, verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. What is he telling us? We are blessed so that we may be a blessing to others. We are blessed with salvation so that we may display and declare the good news to those around us. He goes on, verses 3 and verse 5, the same verse, same words repeated twice. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for for joy. At the end of verse 7, the psalm ends with, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, what do we read of? We read primarily a story of one nation, right? Israel that grew out of of one man that God had chosen named Abraham. And Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, 
They were God's chosen covenant people. But there was this important truth that Israel often forgot. It's one that we often forget as well. God's blessing was never meant to stop with Israel, right? It was meant to flow through Israel to all nations. That's what the Lord told Abraham when the promise was given. Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Verse 18, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Friends, the same is true of the church. A minute ago I read Galatians 3.13. Let's read it again, but let's go all the way to verse 14. What does Paul say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Church, the message of the gospel is always always, always meant to be passed on to others. The church is not a luxury hotel that we join to to vacation for our own comfort. It's an embassy of Christ, and we who are believers are ambassadors of His kingdom. We're a part of the mission. This is our purpose. And if if we don't fulfill it, I mean this individually, personally, but also as a church. If, if we're not outward focused, what happens? We become insular, self-focused, stagnant. We become like a muscle that atrophies, becomes weak without use. Now, if we're going to share this message, which I'm trying to tell you Psalm 67 is what we are called to do, then we have to understand the content of it. What are we telling others? Psalm 67 gives us glimpses of what this message is. First, we're to tell the world that there is only one God who is worthy to be praised. The psalmist says, let the nations praise you, O God. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. Remember, the nations surrounding Israel, they were pagan nations. They worshipped false gods like Baal and Moloch. Now you may say, well, that's not really our culture today. Well, I'll give you that. Even though um, we're in a predominantly secular time and, and place, meaning people have no religious affiliation, even though that's true, the reality is everyone worships something, right? There are people around us who are worshiping false gods. Our family members, our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers. Now, they may not be like, you know, bowing down to a golden idol, but as John Calvin said, every heart, including yours and mine, is a factory for idols. An idol is anything we look to instead of God for purpose, meaning, and satisfaction. Think of the common idols in our, our culture. Where do, where do people look to to find purpose, meaning, and satisfaction? They say, if I would just have this thing, then I'll be satisfied. Well, a common one is pleasure. 
If I can just feel enough pleasure, if I can just feel good, then I'd be satisfied. Another one would be power or, or control. If I could just feel like everything around me is sort of under my purview and I can control it to my own liking, then I would have this true sense of, of meaning. Or, or what about this one? This is probably the most common one, autonomy. If I just had full freedom, no one telling me what to do, certainly no God who's authoritative over me, I could just be free to do as I please. That's where I find my sense of purpose. You can go on and on, materialism, money, sex, whatever it may be. Our world, our culture, our own hearts are full of idols. And one of our roles as Christians, as the church, is to lovingly yet boldly look at the culture around us, look at those around us, and find ways to winsomely yet faithfully uproot the idols of people's hearts. There was a a monk in the 8th century named Boniface. If you're looking for baby names, there's a good one. It's a boy. He was a missionary to the Saxons, so he was in, in Germany. And around the year 724, Boniface arrived to this village. He was going to bring the gospel to this Saxon village. And the village was engaged in, um, they were engaged in pagan worship. And the, the primary expression of this pagan worship was just in a forest just outside of, of the village, there was this tree. And, and they made this tree a shrine to the Norse, the Norse god Thor. Now, I know what you're thinking. Is that the guy from the Marvel movies? Yes, it is. But... There's some history there. If you thought Thor started with Marvel, just Google it later. Um, he's been around for a while. Um, it's not just, we're not talking about Chris Hemsworth here, right? But some of the Saxons had even mingled in. Oh, yeah, Jesus is a God. We respect Jesus as a God. But we sort of mingle it into our worship of Thor, the son of Odin. So they'd go out to this tree, and they would worship Thor there. Now, Boniface was thinking through, praying through, how can I help show these people the folly of their idolatry? So one day, he grabbed an axe, he marched out to Thor's tree, the village with him, and he chopped the tree down. And guess what? Thor did not descend on him with a hammer. No lightning struck him. And he turned and he told the people, much like Elijah with the priests of Baal, you have been worshiping a false god told them of the true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He told them of Jesus Christ. Friends, I think that's a great illustration for us. If we love our, our non-Christian friends, our neighbors, our family, we'll strive to find ways to chop down their idols so we can tell them where true salvation is found. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not talking about physically. If your neighbor's a materialist and you go, I'm going to go burn your new Lexus. I'm not talking about that, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this world. Friends, how can we think of those around us? What do they value? What's what's the thing they're looking to for life and purpose and meaning? And how can we lovingly show them, listen, this will not satisfy you. This will not save you. In fact, it's separating you from true joy and salvation in God. Let me tell you about Christ. So we're supposed to tell others about the one true God in a world of idol worship. 
but also we're supposed to tell them of God's saving power. That's what he says in verse 2. The ways of God and his saving power. On this, Christian, I would encourage each, each of us to equip ourselves to share the gospel with others, to tell of God's saving power in a concise and clear way. Can you do that? Think about that for a moment. One of the most, I'm just going to give you a real practical tool that I use. One of the most helpful things for me, and I don't remember where I got this, is four words. How can I share God's saving power with somebody? God, man, Christ, response. This would be good to write down. God, man, Christ, response. If you're going to tell somebody of God's saving power, you need to tell them first about God, that he's the creator of all things, that he's perfectly holy, that he's worthy of all worship and will punish sin. After all, Psalm 67, 4, he is a God who rules in justice. If he is a just God, he will punish sin. Man, all people, though created good, have become sinful by nature. That's the condition of all of mankind. From birth, all people are alienated from God. And they're not just on the fence with God, but hostile to God. And because of their sin, they're subject to the wrath of God. But the good news is that God has given us Christ. Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him and rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. Number four, response. God, man, Christ, response. God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved and to find their true joy and gladness in him. And then when they do, they live for his glory as they await his return. That is the saving power of God in the gospel in four simple words. That's the content of our message Friends, we should be equipped to share it. Maybe there's an opportunity where you have it to do it as briefly as, as we just did, two minutes. Maybe, and what's more likely is that you're with friends and neighbors and those around you, you're praying for, you're pleading for them, and you're finding ways to bring up these things. But we should know, we should be equipped to share the content of the gospel message with those around us. But notice also, we don't just read of the content of the message here, we also read of the extent of the message. This is to the nations, meaning it's to every people group. When you, when you see nations in, in, in the scriptures, don't think governmental boundaries, think people groups, language groups, ethnic groups. As John Stott says, we must be global Christians with a global vision because we serve a global God. So this is why we as a church have missional prayer every week. This is why we, if you think about the globe, this is why we're pouring money to support Richard and Barbara and Seven Mile Road in Gulu, Uganda, the Mazas in an undisclosed location, laboring in Bible translation, the International Mission Board, Acts 29. We can go on and on and on about organizations that we pray for and support that are bringing the gospel to the nations because there are 7,000 unreached people groups. Think about that for a moment. 7,000 nations in terms of Psalm 67.1 who have never heard the gospel, making up about 3 billion people in our world who don't know the saving power of Christ. 
This should matter to us. One of my prayers is that God would raise up from our little church those who would go across the ocean. God would burden your heart for some of these people groups to say, maybe God is calling me to go and take the gospel to those who have never heard. But friends, that might be overwhelming to us. Just start thinking of 7,000 groups, 3 billion people. So we also have to remind ourselves that we, we can't be for the nations if we're not also for our neighbors. So as we think of where to start, right? If we're, if we're willing to go overseas, but we're not willing to go across the street, then we're not understanding the calling on our lives. So a helpful way to think about this is what Jesus told us in, in Acts chapter 1-8. Here are the concentric circles in this mission that he gives. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If you're a Christian, that's you. You're full with the Spirit. You have Holy Spirit power. And he says, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, right? That's the closest place. In Judea and Samaria, that's the region. And to the ends of the earth, that's the nations. When we read the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened. Started small, concentric circles. The gospel goes out. And friends, here's the encouraging thing. You and I are recipients of that verse, aren't we? We're the nations. So, so here we are, 2,000 years later, August 13th, Waltham, Massachusetts, experiencing the blessing of Christ. Why? Because the good news is for all peoples. And we are a part of that. Jew, Gentile, Ghanaian, Australian, American, Chinese, South African, Brazilian, Ugandan, Guatemalan. We just keep going and going and going. If you're a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, it's because someone in your life said, I have to share the blessing of this news with somebody else. They have to hear it. It's too good to keep to myself. One of the, the greatest Christian, uh, Christmas of my childhood was 1996. It is when I received the Nintendo 64, right? And there was this package, I don't know if they did this with everyone, but my mom got this package where it came with the first game, which was Mario. I think it was Super Mario, I don't know, I can ask someone later who can correct me. And I love that game, it was a fun game, but I got bored quickly because it was a, it was a single player game, just like sitting there playing a game by myself. So we went out and got some other games. I'll tell you my favorite ones. Wave Race, jet ski racing, right? I could do a double backflip. Mario Kart, legendary. And then my favorite, GoldenEye 007. And I loved those games. Do you know why? Because I could bring others and we could play together. When you, when you enjoy something so much, naturally, this is the way God has wired us, we want to share it with others. We want to say, come and see, come and enjoy. I don't just want to experience this for myself. I want you to experience it as well. And friends, that, that's a silly video game. How much more should we be eager to share the life-giving message of the gospel? Charles Spurgeon wrote about this, and he puts it rather, rather bluntly, but I think it's uh, important for us to hear. He says this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I should think about that for a moment. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. 
Recollect that you either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Of course, I do not mean that, that those who use the pen are silent. They're not. And those who help others to use the tongue or spread that which others have written are doing their part well. But that person who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. You hear what Spurgeon is saying here. He's saying if Jesus is not worth telling to others, then you don't value Jesus enough. So Christian, you may not be called to vocational ministry. In fact, most people aren't, and that is a good thing. You may not be called to go to a foreign nation, though I pray God would raise people like that up in our church. But friends, there are no second-rate ambassadors in the embassy of Christ's kingdom. All of us have a responsibility to pray for, to invest in, to share the message of Christ with those around us. Whether you're a painter, a professor, a a chemist, a pastor, a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is, you're called and privileged with this task. So start with your Jerusalem. And I would say this, start by praying. If you feel like I'm not engaged in this and the Spirit's convicting me that I need to be, start with your Jerusalem, your neighborhood, your workplace, your friend group, and just pray, God, show me what it would look like to be an ambassador for the gospel in these places. On Friday night, some of us went to Restore New England, which we've been talking about the last few weeks. Four times a year, this ministry gathers the church to pray for revival in New England. I thought they gave us a great form of prayer. Three things. Behold Jesus, repent of your sins, and then go share the gospel. That's what guided our prayer night. We prayed that we as churches would behold Christ in all of his glory, our blessing of salvation, that we'd, we'd repent of our own sins as we behold him, and then and receive the grace of, of the gospel. And then we would, we would go and tell the nations that God may be praised. That is the goal. And that leads us to number three as we close. What is the goal of our mission? Glory to God. Blessing for us, salvation for others, glory to God. The praise of God is mentioned four times in in these seven verses. The word known in verse two speaks of knowing God's ways in an intimate and worshipful way. The word fear in verse seven Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That word fear means reverential awe of God. The goal is that God would be worshipped, that he would be glorified. We don't don't go with the gospel to build our own kingdoms. We're not trying to say, hey, look how great our church is. We're not trying to say, look, I I checked the the spiritual discipline box of sharing the gospel with others. We're not trying to say, oh, look how great of a Christian I am. We're, We're going because God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. How do we end every single worship gathering? We've done it for the last six years from the book of Jude. To him be glory and honor and power forever and ever, amen. If that's true of us, if we really believe that, when we walk out these doors, our desire should be to say, we need as many people to sing that with us as possible. Westminster Catechism states it this way, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest sin is to glorify God and and enjoy Him forever. 
John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this, worship is the goal and fuel of missions. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It's for all. And that's why we go. Because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus and we want all the families of the earth included. So friends, God has blessed us with salvation. Why? That we may bring the good news of the gospel to others for their gladness and for God's glory. So as we close, may we make this our prayer. May we so love the glory of Jesus that we're willing to to give up our comforts that he may be worshiped by others. May we be be willing to to step outside of the comforts of the, the embassy building as ambassadors to represent King Jesus to a lost world.